I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. I'm sure you've heard on the news recently the outbreak of measles, entirely preventable, has now affected 87 people, all tracked back to Disneyland. Just when we thought measles was eradicated back in 2000, Last year, we saw a high number of cases, 644 to count, including several right here in Hawaii. How can vaccines protect all of us from these types of infections? And why do some folks still refuse to get their shots? Well, I am very pleased to have Dr. Bill Atkinson on, this, on the show today. He's a 25-year veteran from the Centers for Disease Control and is the Associate Director of the Immunization Action Coalition, and he spent several years working on measles, also working on the HPV vaccine. We're going to talk about myths and realities with immunizations today. We're lucky enough to have him here from the mainland. He's doing several speaking engagements at medical centers throughout Oahu. And lucky for me, thanks for joining me here on the show today. Thanks for having me. Now, immunizations. When I was young, you just got them. Your mother just took you to the doctor. You got your you got your shots. She wrote it down on a little card. You hope you kept that until you got older. And and there wasn't really a whole lot to do about it. What changed and why are we seeing these diseases we thought were gone, like measles, coming back at a place like Disneyland? Well, one difference is that there are a lot more vaccines now. Back when we were kids, and I was a kid before you were, uh, there were really only a handful. There was polio. There was there was measles vaccine when I was a child, but there was DTP and there was smallpox vaccine, and there weren't very many. and the, And the and the schedule was very simple, and it didn't require more than one shot or maybe two when you went in, and you were done, and it was easy. Now we have twenty different diseases we can prevent with vaccines, and that. And a lot of injections on the on the schedule, and that upsets some parents. Uh, the The main thing, oh, I think, is that the, our vaccination programs have been so incredibly successful. These diseases that used to be very, very common, and all parents knew them, just don't happen anymore. People don't see them. Occasionally, yes, you see a case of whooping cough or a case of measles now and then, but polio and diphtheria and tetanus and a lot of these diseases that were once common, uh, parents have never seen them. And, and so they aren't afraid of these diseases anymore, like our parents were afraid of polio or measles. Uh, and that's not a motivator anymore. And they're more afraid of the vaccines than they are the, the diseases. Well, and there's certainly been a lot of misinformation that's put out into the media about vaccinations. You know, a few years back, there was the article in Lancet that was debunked by the researcher Wakefield, and he had tied it to some other medical concerns that were totally unrelated. Later, he admitted, hey, listen, I made up some data, which is really kind of horrible when you think about it. Here's a researcher for whom a lot of people decided their information was the explanation for issues that they saw with their children. And yet, I don't think people realize measles can kill you. You could die from it. Now, back in the late 80s, early 90s, we had a lot of cases of measles. Why was that, and how did that change? That was the last really big epidemic of measles we had in this country, and it was because at that time, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, 
the infrastructure to deliver vaccines, in particular to poor people in urban areas, was extremely poor. The The public health infrastructure was not good. Uh, the vaccine supply was really not adequate. And the coverage levels for measles vaccine in some of these big cities, in Los Angeles and New York and Dallas, may have been 70%. And when you've got a third of the children in an area that aren't vaccinated, it's just like a bomb waiting to go off. And all it takes is one case of measles to start a very large epidemic. And we saw huge outbreaks of measles in big urban areas, mostly affecting very young children, uh, preschool kids. You know, they all got their vaccine when they went to school, but it was those preschool age kids, the two and three and four year olds that, that weren't vaccinated. And there were a lot, of, a lot of cases. And that led to actually some fundamental changes in the way that vaccines are distributed in the United States. It led to the Vaccines for Children program and, and a lot of other things. We've by and large solved those problems now. We don't have that issue anymore. So why are we still seeing parents who are not immunizing their children? Well, some people are more afraid of the vaccines than they are of the diseases. Now, granted, some children can't be vaccinated. Some have medical conditions. They have allergies. Uh, measles is a live vaccine. So a child who is immunosuppressed, has cancer or treatment, certain kinds of treatment, they can't take the vaccine. And But some parents just choose not to because they're afraid of the vaccine. They're more afraid of the vaccine than they are of the disease, mostly because of fear of side effects. It's almost always what it is. There are other reasons. There's some religious reasons people don't get it or some lifestyle issues that people decide not to, but mostly it's concern about side effects. Well, and I think sort of an example that has occurred during my lifetime is I remember getting the chicken pox. And I had pox. My mother decided. My sister came home with it. And she put my older brother and myself in the same room and said, go play together. I just want to deal with pox one time. So all three of us were infected simultaneously. We got sick. We got better. Everything was better. We were immune now. And yet nowadays they give vaccinations. So little little kids, little children don't get chicken pox anymore. And it doesn't seem to have as much of an impact until you look at the population as they get older who get shingles. And now there's a lot of information out there, mainly because there's a shot to protect or at least to decrease the likelihood of shingles. But shingles is painful. And anybody out there who knows somebody who's had shingles says, God, I never want to get that. I don't want to get that problem. And so because you can witness and hear about and negative consequence, it may motivate you to protect against it. Thus, in this case, Zostavax or the shot to protect against shingles. And people are out there willing and even asking me about it because they don't want to have that painful disease. But like you mentioned, for those who've never seen measles, who don't understand that one in a thousand kids could die, that you could have permanent brain damage in, in children who acquire this infection without that fear element. And it's not fear that's untoward. It's realistic that they may not be as interested in getting the vaccine. So what about all these kids in Disneyland? Should we have kids be required to be up to date with immunizations before they go to a amusement park? I mean, you have to when you go to school. You have to provide some documentation of immunization or some documentation as to why you don't have it. What should we do about these situations for people who are out in the public? I think the best thing to do is just to continue to remind people that anytime you have a crowd and people are breathing on each other like they certainly can do standing in a line or in a queue or in a restaurant or any place waiting in a crowd of people, in particular when you have 
people coming from outside the United States. That really is what has been the driving force for the measles we've had in this country for the last 10 or 15 years. Almost every case has been imported to us from outside the United States. It's either an American who leaves the country unvaccinated and comes back with measles, or more often than not, it's uh, somebody who comes over to visit us and has measles and starts an outbreak here. So, uh, and certainly Disneyland or any amusement park or any popular visitor tourist destination is going to have international people. And certainly Hawaii is on the cusp of that. You certainly are getting, particularly at we were talking earlier about the outbreak in the Philippines, which is still going on, uh, that that could cause importations anywhere, anytime. In fact, that was the most common place that measles was imported last year from, from the Philippines. And, and so anytime you've got a big mixing of a lot of people, uh, some of who may be coming from outside the United States and may be coughing measles virus out there, people just need to be aware that that's a risk you take, particularly if you haven't been vaccinated, and and just remind people that it's very simple to protect yourself from that by simply getting a, a dose of measles vaccine. And you get it as a child, but should all adults update that at some point? Well, as long as the person is certain they actually got it. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, my mom told me I got it. But we generally don't accept that kind of evidence. If you can come up with a record of some kind that shows the date that you got it, uh, it's not your immunity is permanent. Uh, if you had measles or if you got your one or two doses of measles vaccine, we don't recommend boosters like we do, say, for tetanus uh, or pertussis or whooping cough that does need a booster dose every five or ten years. The Measles immunity is permanent, and rubella and mumps, what you get from the, from the MMR vaccine, doesn't fade. It doesn't go away. You don't need to be boosted again if you, in fact, did get a dose as a child, and that's the key, key thing, that you can actually show that you did. If there's any doubt, if you can't find your record and you're going to Japan or you're going to the Philippines, it is very much worthwhile, even as an adult, to get a dose if, you can't, if you're not certain that you actually did get one as a child. Now, we talked just a little bit earlier, and I was mentioning that there are a lot of people that come in to see me, and they need proof of immunity. They have to somehow prove that they have immunity. They're going to start nursing school or medical school or even college these days. They want to make sure that you are up to date with your immunizations. And serologies are not that good of a test to do. Well, they can be. It depends on what you're doing and how when you're doing it. Um, for people who've had measles, those individuals, for the, for the most part, are going to have detectable antibody, and a, and a blood test will be positive probably for the rest of their life. It's the, the, the immunity you get from the vaccine is good and solid, but it may not produce the same level of antibody. So some people test falsely negative. So the danger is not in telling someone who's not immune that they are. The danger is that they might be below the level of the cutoff of the test, and it may, it may suggest that they're negative when, in fact, they are. But that's actually simple to remedy. You simply give them another dose of vaccine, and that should take care of it. So, so serology certainly is an option for, for some people in some circumstances. Oftentimes, it's just easier and cheaper just to give them the vaccine. And that's the other part of it is, you know, the test to do the serology for the measles, mumps, and rubella, you're talking $50, $60, particularly for each serology versus the same cost for a shot of all three. So there definitely is a cost differential there that people can consider. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with nationally renowned Dr. Bill Atkinson. We're talking about immunizations. And if you had a question, or maybe you're one of those folks that has decided not to get immunized for something, 
That would be interesting to hear your reasons why. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free for my friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, measles is a particular infection that we're hearing about in the news a lot. And this is kind of a good reason for people to take out their immunization list, make sure they're up to date with all of the vaccines that they should re- they should have gotten as an adult or even in the midst of, you know, their childhood. Update tetanus immunization. There's now recommendations to get at least once in your adult life the whooping call for pertussis update if you haven't had that as as an adult. And, you know, there's some people who travel a lot and there's always recommendations on the CDC's website on how they should be careful, keep all their immunizations up to date. The other vaccine that I think, you know, I want to mention some time and talk about is, you know, we, we certainly can talk about measles and no, it doesn't cause autism. Yes, it is included in the MMR shot. And yes, you should get two doses. And if you don't remember that second dose, doesn't hurt to get an extra dose. Never going to harm you or harm anyone around you. The other vaccine that you've done a lot of work on that I know you're quite passionate about is the HPV vaccine. Tell me a little bit about how this shot came about because it's, you know, we've, we've linked viruses to cancer. You know, I, I had mentioned earlier, hey, it's the first virus that we know causes cancer. And you went, nope, hepatitis B, that's one that you forgot about. So tell me a little bit about the history of how we came about the HPV vaccine. And there are several shots in this series. And what is that current recommendation for adults? Well, it, it was a lot of, and I can't take any credit whatsoever for it. It was a lot of very smart scientists. It was the cancer epidemiologists who first got us on the track when they developed a mechanism to identify a human papillomavirus in a laboratory, and then they began to look at different kinds of tumors and realized that, in fact, the genetic material from human papillomavirus, or HPV, was actually integrated into these cancers. And they began to find the fingerprints of this virus in a variety of different cancers uh, in people who clearly had been infected in the past. And to make a long story short, essentially, there has now been good evidence that that uh, that HPV is essentially the sole cause of cervical cancer and is a major contributor to a variety of other cancers of the of the head and neck and of the rectum and and other different mucosal cancers uh, that that uh, that are very important and and very common. So. It then, once it was recognized that HPV was the cause of these cancers, then the the race was on to try to find a way to prevent the infection, with the logic being if you can interrupt the infection cycle, you can prevent the cancer from ever happening in the first place. And this and that was the result of many years of research by a variety of people and a lot of work from a couple of farm, uh, of, of uh, vaccine manufacturers. Uh, and in 2005, we came up with the first, uh, the first HPV vaccines that are among the most effective vaccines that have ever been made. They are, it's just astounding. They did very, very large trials with this vaccine, mainly looking at cervical cancer and at cancer precursors. And the, the, these vaccines in completely vaccinated women were virtually 100% effective. There were essentially no cases of, of precancers or cancers that occurred in the vaccinated women. All the cases that occurred in the clinical trials occurred in the women who got the placebos. It was really just astounding how well these vaccines work. But, but 
because of the inherent association of HPV and the fact that they can be sexually transmitted and issues about talking about sex and other things. These vaccines just have not been, there's two of them, two of them out there uh, that both of them are extraordinarily effective, but they have been very much underutilized and, and girls and now boys are both going without these vaccines and some of those will develop cancer as a result of not being vaccinated with these extraordinarily effective and very, very safe vaccines. So it sounds like it's sort of the new dilemma. So we're having, you know, previously we had issues with people who wanted to avoid certain vaccines for various things. You know, measles is one of them. But now we're seeing a 100 percent effective vaccination that is available to young girls and young boys up until I think the age is cut off at like 26 or 28 or so. And it's 100 percent effective to prevent certain types of cancer. And people aren't getting them. That's correct. And Part I mean, of it, I want to go get this shot right now, but I know the issue is exposure. And if you've already been exposed, the vaccine is not really going to be as helpful for you. That's absolutely correct. And it's something we have to keep reminding folks is that vaccines only work when you give them before the person is infected. That's that's what we do with all vaccines. We give them before the exposure takes place. And it turns out that because of the way the immunization program is structured in the United States, we have... Uh, adolescents, 11, 12, 13-year-olds come in for their pertussis vaccine booster and their meningococcal vaccine. And it was a it was decided that, that would be a very good place to actually add the HPV vaccine to get it started because they were already coming in the office for other vaccines. The other main thing is that with, during the trials, it was found that younger people, uh, girls and boys younger than 16, actually respond to the vaccine much better than older girls and boys do. So actually, not only do they work better, uh, but it's it's very likely that 11 and 12-year-olds are not sexually active, so you're going to be able to vaccinate them and have protect them far in advance of them actually being exposed, which is the fundamental uh, concept of any vaccination program. So really, if we took the the issue of sexually transmitted out of the equation, there may not be as much of resistance getting this vaccine, or you would hope, because, again, it's extremely successful, and it's it's 100%. I mean, what else can we say in life is a guarantee? This is one of those very well-researched guarantees. It just seems to me just to be tragic that we haven't really adopted this and used it full scale like we could, not just here in the United States, but also providing it internationally. We may not see a lot of cervical cancer here at home, but this is a huge issue for women in developing countries. And this becomes a major worldwide health issue. Absolutely. But there are still in this country three to 4,000 women who die from cervical cancer every year. Every year. So there are still thousands of cases. And those will go on because, of course, those women... Uh, are already infected. There's nothing. The vaccine will not help them. The whole idea is to vac- is to prevent the next generation of women from developing those kinds of cancers by immunizing them now, so they will never have to deal with that. Another shot to put on the list. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Bill Atkinson. When we come back, we're going to talk with a couple of callers, and we're going to talk some more about other vaccinations that really we should take a close look at to make sure that we're all protected, and not just for ourselves, but for our families, loved ones, and those all around us. As always, you can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. 
On the next Humankind, we hear from a physician and then from an attorney who have devoted decades to an uphill quest, prevention of nuclear war before the world's arsenal of mass destruction wreaks catastrophe. We hear how they see this existential threat and work to abolish it. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Poet and author Rigoberto Gonzalez considers it his responsibility to review others in the Latino, gay, and literary communities. So much of writing is not necessarily sitting at the computer and actually typing, keyboarding things in. So much of writing is also reading and thinking. Rigoberto Gonzalez discusses his process and reads from his poetry, fiction, and memoir on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with esteemed vaccine expert Dr. Bill Atkinson. He spent a quarter century at the CDC down in Atlanta, Centers for Disease Control, and now is working with the Immunization Action Coalition to try and get the word out about how important it is for people to take advantage of the ability to protect themselves from infections by getting vaccinated. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about HPV, human papillomavirus protection, 100% effective when they were doing the trials, which, again, is outstanding when you think about the ability to protect against cancer. We're going to talk in a few uh, moments about the flu shot. But first, I want to get to a couple of callers. We've got Jeff on the line from Schofield. Jeff, thanks for being so patient. Welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I had a question. Uh, I um, retired from the military, and I went into the military. Uh, they wanted to give me a smallpox vaccination. I had had it as a kid, and I even showed them my record, and they said, oh, you don't have a scar. So they, you know, did all the little pinpricks and uh, gave him basic, basic training and gave me uh, the vaccination. It got red and sore and swollen, but then it went away. And I went to my technical training, <laughs> and they said, oh, you don't have a scar. And they gave it to me again. It got red and swollen and then went away. I never did get a scar. That I, I'm assuming I was, I'm protected. I think you have super immunity by now, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, three times, I guess. But um, why, was it, why wouldn't it form a scar like, you know, like everybody else? Interesting question. Dr. Atkinson? Maybe you're just lucky. Uh, most people who do get a... Well, it, it depends. There's a lot of variability in the kind of response, the reaction people get from smallpox vaccine. Uh, some people just, it has to do with their skin and how deep the vaccine was put in. But I'd say if you got a red spot and it was sore and even if it didn't develop into a blister, it really the typical smallpox vaccine will turn into a blister and that's what ends up with a little scar. Some people just heal up well. Some people don't develop a very big scar. Uh, your record is actually a better uh, a rec- representation of the fact that you were vaccinated. W- of course, we don't vaccinate anybody except certain lab people, and and still the military is using smallpox vaccine uh, anymore. But I I I agree. I I think it's fair to say that you are probably very immune to smallpox and will be for some time. Okay, for, whatever you. that's worth. 
Thank you. All right, Jeff. No harm done. Super immunity <laughs> against smallpox. I think, when did they stop giving that? I think it was like 69. Nin- close, 1971. 1971. Uh, was okay. the last, when it was when the routine childhood vaccination was rescinded. And then we continued to give it to health care providers for about another five years. And uh, in 1976, 77, it was basically discontinued everywhere. Yeah, okay, because I know my older brother, born in 71, he didn't get it. I'm 72. I didn't get it. Um, but, yeah, I know my older sister did, so she was no. 68, so Early she 70s. was in that, in that group. Okay, we've got Nancy on the phone from Maui. Nancy, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thank you. Um, I am one of those parents, well, we did vaccinate our kids, but we delayed the vaccination, which some doctors understood and some didn't. I had a problem with my tiny little infant getting multiple shots. Um, And so we started with some closer to school age. Um, And one thing that was happening, my kids, let's see, they were born in 99 and 01. And one thing was there was a lot of talk about uh, mercury being used in uh, as a preservative, I believe. And then it might be the same thing, but I thought thermosol, I think, is the name of another preservative. And there were a lot of questions, and I think eventually they did change the chemistry, So, which says to me maybe there was something to me listening to my gut and taking charge of my kids' um, health choices, which now we're being taught to be conscious of our choices. So it's a little mixed. I don't know if that helps. Well, I'm curious, Nancy. So you're not against vaccination. You just wanted to alter the schedule for your children. Yes, alter the schedule. And I was really listening. I'd like to know more about what those preservatives that were so controversial. And of course, mercury, we know that that's a poison of some sort. So, yeah, we just kind of delayed, and it actually was a much harder decision. There were people that went the route, of course, all vaccinations and people who did no vaccination. But we were picking and choosing and altering our schedule. So so you were kind of in between and a little bit of both. Okay. Um, I'm curious, Dr. Atkinson, thiomerosol, I think that's how you pronounce it, thiomerosol, and mercury in vaccines. A little bit of controversy a few years back about how much was in the vaccines. It's mercury is generally not in vaccines any further. It wasn't a huge amount. Here we've got Nancy. She's she's right on the edge. She's not a no vaccine person. She's not a give them all yesterday kind of person. What do we? Well, is, and if you uh, sorry to butt in and get back. No, um, that's all right. Consider like when you go to the doctor, they have you there. Of course, they're like, well, we'll do this and this and this vaccine. So maybe it's three shots, but how many vaccines are actually in each shot? So like you're saying, it's a small amount of that chemical, but then times seven or times 12, you know, that's the question. Well, and I think, Nancy, you probably represent what a lot of people are concerned about. And and for some people, they just say, go ahead, give the shot. For other people, they, they just question it. And so, you know, you're 
you've got a really valid question. What about the preservatives? Is it safe to do things in a different fashion? I, I'm happy to hear you're working with your doctor to make sure that your child does get all of their immunizations so that they're not the kid who goes to school and comes home with measles, which could yeah. be really, really serious. So I'm curious, Dr. Atkinson, preservatives in vaccines. That's one of the things people have been concerned about. What do we say to somebody like Nancy? Well, it's actually a fairly long story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, you are correct that they're, they're, the, the, the preserve is called thimerosal. It's a, it's a type of mercury, but it's not the kind of mercury that you get from fish and the kind that's uh, neurotoxic. It's a, it's a different chemical structure of mercury, but it is, does have mercury in it, and that did concern a lot of people. It was used as a uh, preservative in multi-dose vials because some back in the old days they used to distribute vaccine in 10-dose vials and you were sticking a needle into it 10 times and there were some very well-documented cases where where the vial would become contaminated and people died as a result of the contamination that was in the vial. So thimerosal was used in very small amounts to reduce bacterial contamination. And there, early on, there was, after the whole autism issue came up, there were people who were blaming measles vaccine, and there were also people who were trying to blame thimerosal and the mercury in the vaccine. Uh, subsequent to that, there's been many studies, and of course, it wasn't in all vaccines. It was only in those that came in multi-dose vials. The live vaccines like varicella and MMR never had mercury in them. Uh, it was only the, the, the vaccines that came in 10-dose vials. Uh, that was all taken out as a just kind of a presumptive issue about now 15 years ago. It was about about 1999, 2000, that the manufacturers changed their manufacturing processes, and there are no more multi-dose vials. Everything's in single-dose vials now, so there's no more preservative in almost any vaccine because it's not necessary because we don't stick needles in the vials more than once. But subsequent to that, over the last 15 years, there's been a number of studies that have looked, have carefully studied whether children who got mercury, the thimerosal-containing vaccines, were any more likely to develop any kind of a neurologic issue, autism, any number of conditions, and no study has ever found an increased risk of any kind of chronic condition, neurologic condition, anything in children who got vaccines that had thimerosal and those who did not. So it was a concern to a lot of people. It's, it's not a concern anymore because basically thimerosal isn't used anymore in vaccines. Uh, but it turns out that now it, with retrospect, it was never a problem to start with. Uh, and it did do a lot of good. That's, it was in there for a reason. It was in there to protect the vaccine from getting contaminated. Sure, absolutely. So it's the manufacturing process changed, single-dose vial. Yes. That's why it was taken out. Exactly. No other medical concern. No, it you was, know, it was, a few years back, they had those contaminated steroid injections that were given to people that actually, mm -hmm. they were given therapeutic injections of the steroid into their spine or into their body of some type. And because the vials were infected with a fungus... People died. So, I mean, here's an example during our lifetime, Nancy, where, you know, people had completely negative outcomes from an infection that occurred in a multi-dose vial. And you're right. It's it's rare. I don't think any vaccines these days come in anything other than single vial. There's there's one or two, but but virtually all routine childhood vaccines are now completely th uh, preservative-free. There's no thimerosal because they all come in their own little vial or in their own little syringe, and it's not necessary. We don't handle them the same way. We don't stick needles in the vial multiple times. It's one shot, and it's done. One and done. No need for, no need for preservative anymore. 
Well, good. If anybody had that as a concern, take it off your list. Not a source of trouble. Now, let's talk about another shot we've all heard about a lot recently. The flu shot, the good, the bad, the ugly. The It's only 23% effective, according to several different sources. But it's still, there's a value in getting it. How do we come up with our flu shot every year? And oops, this year we were off for one of the particular strains of influenza. But the rest of them we got pretty well. Uh, development of influenza vaccine every year is a unbelievable process. The, the The viruses that are going to be in next year's vaccine are being chosen right now. In other words, the 2015-16 vaccines, the people who think about flu viruses all the time are right now deciding what viruses should be in next year's vaccine. So it's done nine months in advance. And so it requires very educated guessing. And in most years, those educated guesses are correct. But sometimes between January, February, when the decision is made and the time the vaccines are actually released, which happens usually in August or September, the virus changes. Influenza is notorious for altering its structure so that it doesn't look to the immune system like it's predecessor. And so that's what happened this year. Uh, Between last February, when the decision was made about the viruses, and this September, when the the new vaccines came out, the virus changed. And it changed enough so that the antibodies, the response to the vaccine people had, were not as effective against this new circulating strain. And it turns out that's what's been running around the country and is in is very widespread right now. We're right in the midst of uh, big time flu season right now. So unfortunately, that happens. It's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of influenza. Uh, again, most years that they're right on. And also remember, there's there's three or four viruses in each dose of vaccine, and only one of them is off. The other two are actually matched. They match what's actually out there circulating. So so even though one of the strains was a kind of a miss. Uh, the other two were right on. And in fact, there's still benefit, even though the vaccine is not as effective as it might have been, hit it if it, it had masked exactly all three or, or four strains. Now, a few years back, they had the whole H1N1 shot. And that was given back in 09, in addition to the standard flu shot, because there was a new flu strain that had come around and was so concerning that a new shot was released. The reason why we choose in January, February, but we don't get the shot until August, there's a whole process by which this shot has to be manufactured. And that's what takes so long. Yes. So there's a point at which, and I think I read somewhere, it's like March at the latest, that any changes could be made to the flu vaccine. And after that, it can't be done. You got to create a new shot which is kind of what happened in 09 with that whole H1N1 shot. Exactly. So there's a time lag, and it's not just we decide and then, you know, we get our 3D printer, we get our vaccine company to just put in there exactly what we want. You actually have to grow it. There's eggs involved. There's there's a whole scientific process. It's like the Titanic. We can't – actually, that's a bad example. It's like a big boat. You can't make that boat turn very quickly. You really have to take your time. Because there's a lot of other things that are completely dependent on what happens step one to get to step 100. Yes, that's exactly right. And you get to a point of no return that if you are going to change 
the, what's in the vaccine, you essentially have to start over. And you're exactly right. If you recall, H1N1 showed up in the late spring and early summer. And so it was upon us in July and August. And by then, the manufacturers were well into the production of the 2009-2010 vaccine. And there was no going back, which is why they made the decision to actually make a single virus vaccine, which is very unusual. It hadn't been done for 30 years to actually make a single vaccine out of that one strain because it was too late to start over. So, But the, the, the H1N1 virus has been in each seasonal vaccine ever since, including this year. And so just when people say, oh, I didn't want to get that swine flu vaccine. Well, if you got your flu shot, you already did. So really, if you haven't had a flu shot yet, there's still a benefit to getting your vaccine. And luckily, the one strain that was not included is fairly susceptible to Tamiflu and some of the other oral medications out there. Yes, there are three antiviral uh, drugs that can be done. It kind of depends on uh, but yes, th- there are antiviral drugs, and absolutely there is still benefit to getting the vaccine, even though we're in the midst of it. I'm not sure of the level of influence. I believe that, that Hawaii is is reporting a fairly widespread influenza activity as well. You yep. probably could speak to that even more since you're out there in the trenches every day, but, but it's widespread all over the country, and so there's flu every place, and so there's nowhere to hide. So it's definitely beneficial to get your vaccine now, even though it's not quite as effective as it might have been, uh, as it has been in previous years when there was a good match. Still a good idea. Now, medicines that are antivirals, what do they really do? There's this whole time element. You know, we tell people, if you think you have influenza, get in, get seen, or call your doctor, get some sort of treatment if it's influenza. Now, that's just not any flu. That's not, I have a cough, I have a sinus infection. That's truly influenza, which has fairly classic symptoms, extremely high fevers, really bad headaches, cough, but not really productive, really bad body aches. I mean, you kind of feel like a truck hit you. And that's what we're seeing now in a lot of the hospitals. A lot of hospitals are on high level of census because of people coming in with influenza. It's usually the influenza A, the one that is not the perfect match in the shot. Um, so we're certainly seeing a lot of that here in Hawaii. Why is it so important to take medication before five or six days have passed? Well, because by then the damage is done. The The damage to the lung and the damage to the to the respiratory tract has pretty much been done by then. What you want to do is try to interfere with the virus. These drugs uh, help keep the virus from penetrating new cells. So it kind of interrupts the, the transmission. Unlike an antibiotic for a bacteria, antibiotics actually kill the bacteria. It can cause it to blow up or punch holes in its outer surface. Uh, it Viruses are much different, and what these drugs do is interfere with the ability of the virus to invade other cells. And so all you can do is kind of stop it. You can't really kill the virus. So it's important to try to do that before the uh, before a lot of uh, tissue damage has taken place. And the earlier that can be done, uh, the earlier in the illness that can be done, the better. All right. So if you're out there and you think you have influenza, or if someone in your household has been documented to have it, Make sure you get treated because there there are reasons to take the medication for a household member positive for influenza, documented and definite, and that might help protect the rest of the household. So certainly a reason to make sure that if you have those symptoms, you get in touch with your primary care provider as soon as you can. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Bill Atkinson. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about vaccines and hear a little bit about some up-and-coming ones that might be new for all of us. You can join us at 
3689, toll free from neighbor islands and beyond, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. On the next morning edition, how some Alaskans are reacting to President Obama's plan for more protection for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and how people in India are reacting to his environmental and business proposals there. The fortunes of the United States and the fortunes of India are inextricably linked. I'm Renee Montaigne. Hear the news from India to the Arctic on the next morning edition. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Ask anyone in France. There's a lot more to France than just the big city scene in Paris. Don't just go just to Paris. No, it's like going to New York and saying I've been to the U.S. Explore the elegant chateau country of the Loire Valley and hear how ancient legends can breathe life into the prehistoric standing stones of Brittany. Discover the countryside of France on this week's Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. right after Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Bill Atkinson. He is one of the heads of the Immunization Action Coalition, just left the CDC after 25 long years there, helping to work on some of the very vaccines that we're talking about today. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the flu shot. Yes, it's still out there, still helpful. Go get the shot if you haven't yet. And I want to mention briefly, you know, a couple of up-and-coming shots. Now, a lot of people have heard about hepatitis B shots. That's something that is in a series of three, hepatitis B being a particular type of virus that affects the liver that can lead to serious problems, including liver cancer, cirrhosis, other serious liver problems. Um, hep C, that's one that we're hearing a lot about. A new treatment came about for that within the last 12 months or so, really improving the ability to eradicate the virus up to about 90 95% with some of their newer treatments, very cost prohibitive for a lot of folks, very expensive. But that's for people who already have been exposed to the virus. Both Hep B and C, blood and body fluid exposure, that includes sexually transmitted transfusions back before we knew about hepatitis and were testing it. In some cases, intravenous drug use, tattoos with dirty needles, a couple of different ways people have acquired hepatitis. But we're getting close to a shot for Hep C. We're in phase three clinical trials. So do you think this is going to happen? Well, the, there's been work going on for a hepatitis C vaccine for a long time. It's been a difficult one for a variety of reasons. The virus is hard to isolate. It's, uh, it's, and it's going to be hard to test the virus because of the public awareness and the screening programs we have now in the United States. There is a lot less hepatitis C new infections than there used to be before we actually recognized what it was and got the blood supply cleaned up and other things. So, so uh, the, the, vac- the uh, vaccine is in trials, and it likely I, – I can't say I'm not involved in any of that, but, but it, will, it will probably, if the, assuming that the trials are successful and they can show that the vaccine is protective, it will likely be, effect, uh, be available in the next maybe five years. Uh, but, again, I think the, the big burden of the disease is actually on – with people who already are infected and and that probably the the uh, 
that's a very important aspect of research, like the new uh, medications that you were mentioning, to find a way to treat uh, people who are already infected. Uh, the The risk of hepatitis C is much, much less than it used to be, uh, but it's still out there, and the vaccine might be useful in some cases, but certainly a treatment would be very much welcome for all those people who already have it. Absolutely, and that's what I know they've been working on and have almost perfected it. You know, the initial studies have shown Boy, 90, 95% viral eradication with some of the new hepatitis C treatments. Be great if nobody got hep C anymore, and luckily that's much less of a risk these days than it has been in the past. Okay, we can talk about some other new vaccines in just a moment. I want to talk with Brian from Waipahu. Brian, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, um, awesome show. Um, I'm 38, and I'm going to travel um, New York sometime this in April, and then later on um planning a trip to the Philippines. Is there any, like, I understand, I, I think I took all my shots when I was a child, but I don't remember those kids days where a scary doctor um, shot me. But Understood. let's say I took all the shots. Do I need to take any booster shots or anything like that that says that, okay, since I'm traveling and then especially when I'm going to a developing country later on, what, do I need to take anything else or do I just say, okay, I'm, I'm kind of like, I mean, I'm all good. Good question, Brian. Do you have any record of those former shots? I don't know. I was a child. I don't know because, I mean, my, when I was a kid, my doctors changed, you know, after I grew up. So I don't know any of it. You're not sure, I, sure. I assume that I thought maybe if you go to public school, you have to get your records or something. So if I was accepted in school, it's, I probably assume I did. It's it's true. You know, in order to go to public schools in a lot of places, particularly here in Hawaii, they require that you provide proof of immunization. But, you know, you're not alone, Brian. How many people in their 30s are like, hey, I want to travel. What am I going to do? I don't have proof that I've had these vaccines. What's the next step? Now, you know, Dr. Atkinson here from the CDC, I got to give you guys props over there. Fabulous website, cdc.gov. Go check out the Traveler's Health section. I don't think you're going to be in trouble in New York, but the Philippines is an area to really be focused on. And for someone like this, Dr. Bill, you know, hey, he thinks he's okay, but we know that the Philippines has this outbreak of measles. We know that there are some recommendations as an adult to do an oral polio update, tetanus update, pertussis or whooping cough update. What should Brian do? Well, uh, the top of the list is is measles because the this outbreak in in the Philippines has been widespread and is still going on, and if you can't come up with a record of some kind, again, you should not assume just because you went to school that you were vaccinated, as as would have been necessary because. Not everybody got checked and people slipped through the cracks. If you can't come up with a record of some sort, it is in your advantage to go and either be tested to see if you're immune to measles or what's actually easier is just go get a dose of MMR vaccine. Just get a dose. If you're already immune, it won't hurt you and it will protect you from a very common disease now in the Philippines. Uh, Sorry, what's the, like, for example, how long before, you know, I get the shot and then it you know, set through my body and say, okay, I mean, what's the, uh, I think, um, the time period from shot to, let's say, exposure? If at all possible, you need to get your shot about a month before you go. That will uh-huh. give you the biggest edge. But for measles vaccine, you could literally get it. It will probably protect you even if you got it practically on your way out, on your way to go to the plane. But it's much better if you've got it and it's already established the immunity and you're immune as soon as you walk off the plane. And to do that, you ought to get it 
two to four weeks in advance. So if you're going to go later this year, go do it now. Uh, go, Don't put it off. The other thing you definitely want to get is, if you don't know that you've had one that was mentioned earlier, is a dose of what we call Tdap. It's tetanus and diphtheria, and it's got whooping cough, a, a formulation for adults in it. Adults and whooping cough are a very bad a very bad mixture. You want to make sure you get a single booster dose of that. And finally, if you're going to the Philippines, I would strongly suggest that you get a dose of hepatitis A vaccine. Hepatitis A is very common in virtually every place else in the entire world, uh, and certainly in places that don't have very good sanitation, uh, and most of Asia and Africa and even even the Americas. Uh, hepatitis A is very common. Hepatitis A is a very nasty disease. Uh, infants and young children don't get too sick, but adults get extremely sick. So those are three critical vaccines that you want to make sure you have. Again, I agree that New York isn't an issue, uh, but but certainly, if you're going out of the country, you want to get your measles vaccine, MMR. You want to get a dose of Tdap. That's your pertussis uh, and tetanus booster. And uh, at least one dose or two, if you can, of hepatitis A vaccine. All right, Brian, have a lot of fun on your trip. And make sure that you do get those vaccines. You don't want to spend all that money on a fabulous plane ride going all the way to the Philippines, enjoying yourself and you know, get yellow like the sun because you're jaundiced because you got that darn hep A. And that's food and water. So, you know, who knows if you can get exposed to it because no matter what you do, there's still that potential. As long as you're eating there and you're drinking water, food that's made with water, there's a risk. So good idea to go get it checked out. And hopefully you'll do that, Brian, pretty darn quick. Okay, we've got George on the phone from Kaneo. Hey, George, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Hi there. What can we do for you? Um somewhat concerned about the strong recommendation for the neuraminidase inhibitors from my study and only a few studies that have shown any benefit at all over placebo and when compared to like Tylenol and Motrin there's actually sometimes no documented benefit at all and in fact the best study was like 15 hours shorter duration than placebo so I was just wondering if we could get some comments about how important the $130 medicine is for somebody who's on a normal budget? Well, it's a good it's a good question, George. You know, here you are wondering, hey, if I got the flu, do I have to spend $130 to go ahead and take a medicine to to try and get better from it? But the opposite is also the case, which is there are people who get the influenza infection and they wind up getting pneumonia and they wind up having other complications. And you never know if you're going to be in that category or not. And so, you know, if you look at the cost of the, the medication versus the potential cost to your body of having the infection get worse, add into that the cost of lost hours at your job if, if you're on a normal budget and you're concerned about that. I'm still a fan of if you, if you can treat it early enough. Now, one of the biggest problems with using those medications is timing because if you don't take the medicine early enough, then it's not going to actually show you the efficacy that we're looking for. And that's really one of the concerns. Now, Dr. Atkinson, your thoughts, if you get the flu, if you had the flu, now I know you get your flu shot every year, but if you got it, would you be taking the medicine? I think that it's it's probably the neuromatidase inhibitors, the, the drugs we have right now to treat influenza uh, infection, is probably most critical 
for those individuals who are at the highest risk of serious complications. Those are the people at the top of the list. These would be very young children, and clearly the neuraminidase inhibitors, uh, that the, the antiviral drugs that are available now have shown to shorten the duration and in some cases reduce the risk of complications. Uh, and people who have underlying medical conditions, people with bad lung disease, bad heart disease, people who have malignancies, people who are at high risk for complications of flu are the people who it's most important to to take these. It's true. Most people, most healthy, relatively young people will survive a case of influenza and do nothing more than feel terrible uh, for a week or two, and it, they won't die. Uh, but people who are, have, have high risk of complications are the, are the people who are, it's most important that they, they consult their physician and get those drugs early on. And again, it, you're, it's true. They, they, do, they will shorten uh, the uh, shedding of the virus a little bit. They will perhaps reduce the risk of complications. But it's those people who are at the highest risk. It's, it's the ones that we've concentrated on the most, the people who are most likely to have serious complications and in whom, unfortunately, the vaccine is least effective. And that's the highest priority group for, for the antiviral drugs we have. All right, George. So if you're young, you're healthy, no lung problems, you're good. If you're not or you're living with people who have these other sorts of medical concerns, older folks, young, young children, you want to make sure that you you don't expose them as much as possible. But good point. If we had a shortage of Tamiflu, we should or Relenza or some of the other medications, we should focus it on the people who have the other medical concerns and need it. The most, And I think a few years ago, we actually had a Tamiflu shortage. And there were people we were trying to prioritize who really needs to have that available. And, yes, and that was some of the priorities. We understand we the, the manufacturers have reassured us that they have plenty of supply right now, so this shouldn't be an issue, particularly in the face of the fact that our the vaccine is less effective than we thought. But we've they've been in the loop, and apparently there's, there's not an issue with supply. So this year, year no supply issues. Use it if you need it. Get it as quick as you can. All right, let's talk about another up-and-coming vaccine that, you know, we don't hear as much about, the meningococcal vaccine. And that's come around a few years back. It was something that we used to give for people around college-age time because we would see people living in group dorms or in, in campuses that were getting meningococcus. And now we have more than one meningococcal variant and vaccine. Tell me a little bit more. Uh, you're absolutely correct. We There's actually uh, several types of meningococcus that can cause meningitis. It's a very severe type of meningitis that can be fatal. Uh, oftentimes, if people lose limbs, it's not something we want to take many chances with. We've had a vaccine that protected against three of the, actually, we had four types of, 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 of these bacteria in it. It's called quadrivalent. We've had it now, a really good vaccine for 10 years. And it's the one that was caused the problems in colleges early on. But there's this other strain of meningococcus called meningococcus B. And it, we have not had a vaccine for that one. Uh, we've, we've had the other vaccine, and it, it seems to have been quite effective and protected a lot of people, particularly college age, college students, and people who work in laboratories and certain people with certain kinds of underlying medical conditions. Uh, but we've never had a meningococcal B infection, and you probably are aware of that because it caused, the big out, it caused the outbreaks at Princeton last year and at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where they did big mass vaccination programs. That was meningococcal type B. And 
with literally within the last three months, we've had two meningococcal B vaccines licensed by the Food and Drug Administration. They're now available. Uh, one of them is a two-dose vaccine. The other one's a three-dose vaccine, and they've been approved for people 10 to 25 years old. And even as we speak, the CDC is trying to come up with guidelines about how to use these vaccines. Uh, the, 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 the infections are fairly rare. There probably are only 50 or 60 cases a year in the whole country, uh, but they can, 10% of those are fatal, and many of the others can cause loss of limbs, arms, legs, fingers, nose. So it's a very severe disease that, that has great impact on the people who have it. So now the decision is how exactly should we use this vaccine? Should we give it to everybody? Should we give it to all teenagers? Should it go to college students? Who exactly should get this new vaccine? And that's what's being debated uh, even as we speak now. So what else is coming around the pike? In the world of immunizations, what are, in five years from now, maybe even 10 years from now, where do you see this going? Looking retrospectively, having spent, you know, that many years at the CDC, I almost said quarter century. I didn't want to make you feel old. I think I just said it anyway. Where do you see us going with immunity, with immunizations? Are we going to get even more immunizations? Are we going to finally figure out how to adequately vaccinate people with the ones we already have? Where do you see our our future going with with the use of immunizations? Well, we certainly have the potential to have a lot more impact with the vaccines we already have. And I keep coming back to human papillomavirus, to HPV, that our our levels are completely inadequate now, probably even in Hawaii, which does as good a job as any place, probably no more than half of, of, of girls have, have, have been completely vaccinated. Uh, so HPV, we have a huge amount of progress we could make with that. It is likely that, again, with meninge B, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to come out. It likely will be a very specific vaccine for certain high-risk groups rather than for everybody since the disease is kind of rare and the vaccine's expensive. Uh, there are some other vaccines that are on the horizon, uh, a, a vaccine for uh, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, which is a very severe uh, lung infection in very young children. That's another one that's been a moving target for decades to try to come up with an RSV vaccine. I think one of the main things is there's a move afoot to try to combine uh, parents are concerned about the number of injections their children are getting, and, and, and the manufacturers are hearing that, and they're trying to find ways to actually reduce the number of shots uh, to try not to compromise the amount of immunity we can get, but to, to reduce the number of injections that a child gets. And I think there's going to be more combination vaccines coming along that will reduce the number of injections that a child will have and still be able to be completely protected. Uh, and and one of the biggest challenges is to try to get vaccines into adults. Uh, we do great. We do generally really well with vaccinating children. We have probably the best vaccinated children in the entire world uh, in the United States. But we do a pitiful job vaccinating adults with influenza, with pneumococcal vaccine, uh, with hepatitis A, with MMR in some cases, even simple vaccines. So we need to find ways to remind adults that they need to be vaccinated and get them in and, and, uh, and try to raise. We, there's a lot of disease we could prevent in adult populations. We're just not getting the vaccines into them. All right. That's a challenge we're just going to have to accept. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us here today on The Body Show. Dr. Bill Atkinson is the Associate Director for the Immunization Education and Coalition. 
And he also has spent 25 years at the CDC helping to perfect some of the immunizations we take advantage of now. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. See you then.